0: and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I, and I Think You're Interesting. I am a cat person. I've always been a cat person. I grew up on a farm with dogs and cats, but I always sort of gravitated to the cats. I, I love my dogs, but uh, the cats were a little more withholding, and for some reason I, I was I was a fan of that. Now that I am a, a grown-ass man, I, I have many cats. My wife does not allow me to say how many I have, Two people. In fact, when I say that, she says, "Oh, you shouldn't have said that." So I'm not going to tell you on this podcast how many cats I have because it's an embarrassing number of cats. But I'm really happy to have today's guest on. Her name is Jada Torn. She directed the film Katie, which is about the street cats of Istanbul, but it's also about so many other things. It's it's a wonderful little documentary, and it's my favorite movie of 2017 so far. I guess I kind of want to start with, I've read your bio, so I kind of know the answer to this, but I'd love to hear it in your own words. Why cats? Why is that a subject you were, you were drawn to?
1: Well, you know, cats have a very special, especially street cats of Istanbul have a very special place in my heart because I grew up there and I was definitely one of those loner kids who played a lot more outdoors with animals than I did, you know, with other kids. And cats can be You know, cats are very unique in the way that they can be um, very complimentary to you in the sense that they feel like, they make you feel like they choose you to hang out with you, Um, yet at the same time they're very um, self-sufficient and, you know, um, interesting and mysterious, and so they allowed for my imagination uh, to, you know, to entertain me and um, so, for me, cats, especially street cats of Istanbul, are just my original best friends mm. and of course, not all street cats of Istanbul are amazing <laughs> uh just like you might get to know a person and not like them. you might get to know a cat and not like him or her either right right. but I just had such wonderful experiences with them. It was something I wanted to document and make sure that it was shared with the world
0: uh your your bias is you you grew up you grew up in Istanbul and you moved away when you were eleven, I believe. Mm-hmm. But uh, you had, you as you've mentioned, had all these cat friends. Uh, do, do you remember like one or two in particular that were really, you were close to, I guess?
1: Well, really, it was one. It was one female cat who was gray and white, um, short-haired. And she, her name, I named her Bonjuk, which is like the standard, it's like buttons. It's like <laughs> the most standard name. Yeah. It's so not original. But I was like six. And um, she was my, she was the first street cat that I started sort of, um, hanging out with, and then she just kept on having kittens Mm. and litters and litters of kittens. And I think in the end, it was about 23 cats in like bunches of, at first it's like seven, nine, and then they dwindled down to like five, three, two, Mm. you know? And so this was over the course of like six years, Mm. five, six years that I got to, um, you know, be part of her family in many ways.
0: Mm. Mm. Did you feel like a responsibility for those kittens even as a child? Were you like trying to, I guess, not look after them since they were on their own, but, like, make sure they were okay?
1: You know, I think kids naturally do that mm-hmm. a lot of times. You know, they want to take care of things and um, either protect them or provide for them. It it also gives you a little sense of purpose as a child, too. And, and mind you, this is, like, mid-'80s Turkey. There's, like, two TV channels that don't really show anything, except on Sunday mornings it's either a Disney movie or a BBC documentary, mm. which is so— interesting now that I think about that and I think about our film and I was kind of somewhere in between those two things. <laughs> um, I think it's kind of global, but my our generation of kids grew up on the streets or in the backyards a, a, a lot more than kids grow up now. And we were bored often, or we had to find things to entertain ourselves because we didn't have the technology. So being able to, you know, bring a little cup of milk every morning and find where the kittens were hiding or, you know, where did the great cat, you know, hide this time. And, you know, it was just all part of, um, I don't know if I was aware in any way that they needed to be taken care of, except that I wanted to be of use, Mm. you know, and it gave me like something really fulfilling to do with my time.
0: Interesting. Uh, You've mentioned sort of uh, distinguishing these street cats. Uh, I lived in Long Beach for many years, which has many uh, street cats as well. And I guess you, this sort of comes up in the film, but there is kind of this divide between street cats and cats that are either domesticated or actual house cats. And I'm wondering how kind of you see that as someone who is studying these cats over the years.
1: You know, it's a, it's an interesting situation because you can't quite categorize the cats that you see in Istanbul and say, okay, these guys are obviously born and raised on the streets and these are not. It's The idea of having cats as pets inside the home is very new. In Turkey, same with dogs. I mean, maybe 20, 30 years, you know. Um, Cats have always been around. They've come in in and out of homes, but the idea of owning them and feeding them special food, Mm. having special veterinarians to take them to is very new. In my childhood, we didn't have cat food, and we didn't have cat veterinarians. Like, the vets were often farm animal vets Mm. that, you know, happened to also know how to handle the cat situation. It was more like, you know— like the two times, the couple of times I got scratched and my mom got worried that I had to go get rabies shots, you know. So um, it was more <laughs> human doctors than cat doctors around. Now things have changed and um, pet shops are around so you can buy cute kittens mm-hmm. on the pet, in the pet shops. And it's rare that you, I mean, so I can't tell you. With 100% certainty that so many of the cats you see on the streets have never been in anyone's home because there's very good likelihood that some of them may have been dumped mm. by people who first thought kittens are cute and then realize they can't actually f- take care of them and then leave them on the streets. There's also cases of people who don't believe um, in neutering, which is a controversial concept, Who whose kitten whose cats have kittens and then they don't know... Like, how are they going to take care of six more cats? Mm-hmm. So then, you know, they just put them somewhere else and they mix in the neighborhood. And there's definitely a huge population of cats that are genuinely born and raised in the streets, mm. which was the ca- case of my cat or the cat that I called buttons um, and her kittens, they were they were all of the streets. And Istanbul is has had this ancient um, relationship with cats between people and cats um for thousands of thousands of years that. It's hard to say where you draw the line in saying this cat is domesticated or a house cat and this cat is not.
0: Mm-hmm. It seems to me from watching other films like this and just from my own observations that like it's hard for a dog to be the subject of like uh, the subject of the camera in a way that it is for a cat because dogs are somehow aware of the camera and, and cats are but they just don't care. Uh, what, what do you think makes a cat a good subject to, to film?
1: Well, Istanbul cats are particularly very comfortable with people. That makes a huge difference. I mean, I try to chase down cats in LA, and they do not <laughs> want to talk to me. I'm like, "Come on, please let me pet you just a little bit." No, um, mostly because they probably have a life with another human and they don't seek out more relationships. But um, uh, in Istanbul, it was it was a lot easier. But you know, dogs are dogs have a much harder life. Mm-hmm. Um, they they can be a lot more dangerous. So people think of them as being um, being creatures that need to be kind of kept a little bit more at bay. Mm-hmm. Whereas cats really can come in and out of almost anywhere. I mean, they're in university halls, they're in parliaments, they show up at the, you know, <laughs> the summit meetings and mm-hmm. walk the stages, you know. So they, they can fit through anything, they can jump over anything. They're very capable beings. Um, and they... I I found that they became aware of the camera in a very similar way that they became aware of another person. Mm. It was almost like the lens was like a giant eye to -hmm. them. And they could see their own reflection in it, but it wasn't—you know, it was almost as if they understood that they were being filmed. Mm. Uh, And they seemed to have appreciated it. And there were many times—there are many shots in the film that you say, wow, how did that cat—how did they get that shot? Honestly, a lot of times cats did it for us. Like we didn't, you know, there's a cat that's on the roof, on the ledge of a roof at the end of, towards the end of the film when there's the sun is setting behind him. And he literally, you know, he walks the, walks the ledge, sits down right in front of the sunset, (laughs) looks our direction, kind of blinks knowingly, and then... And we were just behind the camera. Our jaws had dropped open. We're like, wow, I can't believe he just did that. And, he, and we were like, could you do it again? <laughs> and he would go around the ledge and do it again. You know, wow. it was it was a very interesting experience. Mm. But if they didn't want to be filmed, they were very clear from the very beginning. The moment that we showed up, they would run away. And that was the end of that. Mm. Mm. Um, but if they appreciated it, they were there. Maybe because you know my ca- our camera, my um, cinematographer Charlie and I are also very calm, feline characters themselves. Mm-hmm. So maybe there is the understanding.
0: Yeah. What, what you mentioned that sometimes a cat would just let you know it didn't want to be filmed. What are the challenges of of filming animals? Like, what are the challenges of of making sure you're getting the right shots and and following them around even?
1: Well, in a place like Istanbul, they not only navigate the city, you know horizontally, but also vertically. So they're like jumping up into other people's balconies and we're knocking on people's doors. But if somebody's not there or it's a vacant house, that's the end of that Mm. track, you know, of that cat. And um, in fact, we had elaborate ideas about harnesses and cat cams that we could put on the cats. And not only, of course, do they not like wearing things, but also, you know, if they just go somewhere that we can't get after them, there goes that camera, Mm. you know, so... It was it was a challenge because we couldn't, you know, we couldn't like set up cameras in certain strategic places and hope that they would pass by. It's not like the, you know, the savannah where you just have like five trees and you just put all your cameras there. It was literally um, endless possibilities of where cats could be. So the only way we could achieve it was if we were always at least two cameras following a cat and really imposing ourselves on people. And relying on people to say, oh, you're, you know, the Ginger Tabby is back, Mm -hmm. you know. And we just, we were in a small van, we were very mobile, and we'd dart across the city and we'd just get there and film whatever she was doing. Mm -hmm. Or she'd be gone. We'd wait a little bit, drink some tea, talk to the people, you Mm -hmm. know. But um, in in this particular film, the biggest challenges actually were... Cats wanted to also come and sit on our laps a lot and, like, be pet a lot because they just really are very sort of affectionate creatures, most of them, not all of them. Um, I should never—you can never generalize with cats (laughs) or any animal, really. But So there were times often that we'd get in perfect, you know, frame, perfect shot, and then the cat would start walking and sit, uh, you know, on the camera or start rubbing her face on the camera rig (laughs) Um, Or start licking herself, which is, we have hours of footage of cats licking themselves.
0: (laughs) Uh, For the DVD. For the Um, (laughs) DVD,
1: indeed. Yeah. uh,
0: Well, there are some really great shots in this film of uh, basically, if you think of like camera shots that follow a person as they walk through their environment, you've probably seen those in movies before. You do some shots like that with cats, which are like ground level. And I'm wondering how you captured those. Was it like, was that, did you have to build a rig of some sort or were you like stooped over? I, I don't know. what. How, how did you handle that?
1: Yeah, in the end, we built a rig. Um, Charlie and I... Uh, we we had actually you know modified remote control trucks that we fitted with cameras, which the cats did not enjoy the whining engine noise, so they immediately didn't. That was immediately scrapped. We do have some shots of a market stall, like going underneath the stalls and everything that we were able to capture with that remote remote control car, but on the whole, um, we realized that the cats responded most positively to the cameras with the people attached to them. Mm-hmm. And so Charlie and I, after two days in the re- in the sort of prep period, being hunched over and you know getting backaches in <laughs> twenty minutes, decided okay we need to build this rig right now. And so they built a rig that allowed the it was we shot with um, two Canon five Ds Mark threes, and they had mon- tiny monitors but still monitors. So they could pl- put them on a platform with a kind of an elongated handle that would allow them to have the camera at the cat's level without having to hunch over and still be able to manipulate the focus. Mm. And that ended up being the primary footage that we used as well, because it's also so stunning with these, you know, prime lenses that we had and all this um, sensibilities of these two cinematographers to be able to capture these beautiful shots. It was a challenge. I mean, it was because it was very important that we shot from their perspective, Mm -hmm. not in a um, exaggerated... Sort of caricature-ish way, but rather as if they were the centers of the film, mm. um, and we could only achieve that as if if we treated them as if they were human subjects. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. just like we would get over-the-shoulder shots walking with a human subject, we got over-the-shoulder shots walking with a cat.
0: Mm. Mm. <laughs> That's great. Um, tell me about casting this film, so to speak. Like, uh, how did you choose? But well, I mean, there's a lot of really great human characters in this film as well. How did you sort of choose your feline and, and human uh, actors? Quote unquote.
1: <laughs> well, we had uh, I had two approaches. One of them was we, and part of the reason why the film ended up being what it is was because we discovered during our research phase of the film that the relationship between the cats and the people were was what was really interesting and worthwhile documenting and presenting with this film less more than you know just cats in Istanbul like march of the penguins mm. people were going to be inevitably part of it because at first we I was thinking maybe no humans yeah. let's just only do cats but it's cats and humans are so interlinked with their experience of life in many ways that you almost can't separate the cat from the human right. um, which is another point of discussion but um so um we literally walked the streets. We went to every single neighborhood. We talked to everyone we could talk to. Often people would say, What are you doing? <laughs> we say, Do you know any cat that goes, you know, oh, does this cat go also to other people? You know, because we'd find often that a cat would have a name by one group of people and then another name down the road by another group of people. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: And, um, or a cat would unite a group of people together. You know, it was very, it's very interesting. So we, And then, uh, so two and a half months or three months before we actually went to do the filming in the summer of uh, 2014, we had local researchers do what we had done and walk the streets and talk to people and look for cats on boats, cats in the mosque, cats in churches, cats on, you know, in restaurants and cats anywhere. Mm -hmm. And we had leads to 35 or so cats when we um, started filming. And in the end, we managed to film about 19 of them. Mm -hmm for simple logistic reasons, you know, often they wouldn't show up or they would show up, but then they wouldn't show up the next week. Mm. And uh, in the end, in the edit, it came down to the seven that you have in the film, which who are each, each, you know, they highlight a different theme um, in the film that's strung together, creates a different sort of emotional experience. You mentioned that
0: about themes and and emotional experiences. And as you were... um as you were making the film, were you conscious of certain things you wanted, certain ideas or emotions you wanted to capture? Or did that sort of emerge as as you were making it and then in editing?
1: Um, we, of course, a lot emerged in the editing. And Mo Stobie, who was, the, who was the editor of the film, he's like a visual, you know, storyteller genius. And um, he could understand – he understood exactly what I was going for and he could find those sort of visual um, references to put it together. Uh, it's it's It was a challenge because it's not a straightforward – documentary in its structure it doesn't have a narrative structure that we are used to right. um, but in many ways it was it's so interesting because it's so true to how cats are and how our relationship with cats are is so in many ways it I'm really glad that it ended up being this poetic structure um and it was many, like many times of you know re-editing and putting the puzzle pieces together in different ways, and watching it again, and stepping away from it, coming back and watching it again. It's because it's it's a bit of poetry. You can't really you know it's not as cerebral um, as um, as most approaches are. Um, but also, I realized I didn't quite answer your previous question about the people. There's also a lot of people that we I sought out who were writers, philosophers, painters who had something very unique about their work with cats. Mm-hmm. And so I made sure to speak to those people as well. And while they were speaking and telling me their perspective about their relationship with cats, it helped create the sort of poetry, the poetic structure of the film, where it's not so about... Um, uh, you know, giving you facts about stuff, but rather taking on a journey of an experience of being in Istanbul, spending time with these cats and these people, so so as to have a different understanding, or at least maybe an understanding that it's all very similar, and you can say you find some reference to yourself.
0: Mm-hmm. What was something you sort of um, didn't foresee being? Either a challenge in the film, or something that was going to be in the film, or like a theme that arose as you were as you were filming, uh, that you sort of went in thinking, "Oh, this is going to be easy," or "We're going to find this," and, and that you just uh, it just didn't happen.
1: Well, the one thing that I'm kind of disappointed about was that I couldn't find a kid like me mm. who had who was taking care of cats in the backyard of the apartment building because kids aren't really doing that anymore. Mm. Uh, For many reasons, for the obvious reasons that, you know, there's other stuff for them to do. Their lives are a lot busier than our lives were. Um, The city is a bit less accommodating to hanging out on the streets, Mm -hmm. which in many ways is sort of ended up being the bigger theme for me. Um, That while when you look at how cats live on the streets of Istanbul, you start also questioning how we live Mm -hmm. and how we've become sort of these apartment people you know, and everybody's cooped up in little apartments. And um, I mean, in Los Angeles, it's a bit different, but it's actually quite similar to like New York mm-hmm. in that sense that we live very vertically now and um, and there's a lot of layers of concrete between our feet and the soil. You know, <laughs> so it's like we've, uh, so I wish I had found more of a, of, of you know, way to represent that idea with these kids. Um, but it was actually, it ended up highlighting the necessity for it or rather the lack of it. The lack of this um, f- uh, connection with nature.
0: Mm-hmm. This uh, I, that kind of does lead in nice to what I want to talk about next. Is we we have talked about Istanbul a lot, and this film really captures. I want to say Istanbul is like a cultural nexus point. As like you go to down to the ports, and there's the guy who talks about well, this cat's probably from Norway, and like. Uh, sort of it, it captures the history of the city, but also where it's going, this uh, increased um, development, gentrification, things like that. Uh, and I'm wondering, like, how you see Katz as portraying that city and sort of vice versa, like what, what Istanbul brings to cats, I guess.
1: Well, I mean, Istanbul, you know, it's, it's had so many reincarnations over the thousands of years that it's existed as a city. Uh, it's hard to um, predict where it's going to end up going. Or In the short term, maybe easier, but in the long term, it's hard to say. I guess that's part of the reason why focusing on cats in the city was was so um, exciting to me because they feel like, because they've been there for thousands of years, they feel like they have this sort of timelessness to them and to the city. Um, And Istanbul uh, is, you know, the people of Istanbul are very loving people and people who have been... Exposed to people of different backgrounds for very long periods of time, like any other port city,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: this is why port you know people in port cities are generally more progressive and more liberal because they're just used to meeting people from different backgrounds. Uh, so in many ways, I think that's why cats are also a lot more um, accommodated uh, in Istanbul, and um, and they do provide the sort of much needed breath, you know, the stopping to smell the roses. Mm-hmm idea is really stopping to pet the cat or have a, have a moment of that, you know, physical contact. It does really um, allow you to stay in this hectic, chaotic sort of big city mm. um, environment. What's, uh,
0: what was for you the best thing about shooting in Istanbul? What was uh, going back to the place where you had grown up and, and filming there? What, what makes that a great city to put on screen?
1: It's, uh, like most cities, it's also not correctly represented in, you know, tour guides or international films and obviously news reports. Um, so it was very important to me that a lot of the imagery is stuff you haven't never seen, images you've never really seen of Turkey, of Istanbul. Um, and a lot of the things that you are used to seeing are not in the film for that very specific reason. Um, when we were filming, actually, when we were there for the research phase, it was the Gezi Park protests of... Um, 2013, which was really about saving na- natural spaces, green spaces in the city, or you know how we're gonna mm-hmm. balance it out, kind of thing. And there was a lot of political upheaval. There was a lot of you know the, this was the very beginning of the Syrian refugee crisis, and I was feeling very, very gloomy. Mm-hmm. And during the filming as well, I was feeling kind of every day I would say, are we really making a film about cats? Like there's the Syrian refugee children and there's the, you know, other stuff going on. And we're folk, are we really doing all of this effort for this cat's um, idea? But to be perfectly honest, then this is what was so beautiful about the experience for me, is that the more people I talk to... And I will tell you, there were a lot more people who wanted to talk about their love for cats than those who didn't. Mm. There were very, very few people percentage-wise who were just out and out angry with us or angry with the world, you know. The majority of the people in the city were loving, thoughtful human beings. And after being able to talk to them at length for, you know, two and a half, three months, I left the city feeling a restored sense of faith in humanity and in the humanity of the people in Istanbul. And in many ways, the film became that too, you know. And now people from other parts of the world are watching the film and saying that they feel their faith in humanity is getting restored in, in some ways, mm. which, you know, um, it's so critical nowadays, I feel. Yeah. And so for me, it was really just so wonderful and so satisfying to see that, you know, we're going to be okay you know, the people themselves in their hearts are good people.
0: Mm, mm. Uh, you, as we sort of talked about, you you left Istanbul when you were 11. Um, and you've probably been back there over the years, but you were there for an extended period of time shooting this film. What did you most, like, realize about the place that you hadn't known as a child that you now saw as an adult and were like, oh, okay, I get that now?
1: Well, you know, I had the advantage of being able to come back to Istanbul every year at least once or twice. Mm-hmm. My mother was very keen that we didn't lose our language, our culture, um, and they are, my entire family is still in Istanbul. Mm. Uh, so in a way, I was it was very interesting because I would come back short periods of time every year and I would see the changes that were happening really clearly because, you know, that's how it, that's how it goes, right? Um, but the one thing that was constant were the cats, which was another reason why it was very important for me to make this film. But um, while making it, because i had to look at the city through the perspective of the cats i started noticing things that i hadn't noticed before i mean really kind of unrelated to cats for example there's always these sort of holes on the bottoms and entrance steps to apartment buildings in certain right. old parts of town and i never knew what those holes were mm-hmm. Be, and I hadn't really noticed them because I don't you know I'm not looking at that level <laughs> yeah. and uh, I found out that talking to architects about you know how we also accommodated animals and things like that I found out that those holes were the ventilation holes for the Turkish baths that everybody could had access to before plumbing before
2: mm.
1: you know having individual bathroom showers in your house you had um, in the basement of the house apartment you had this and this is like you know a hundred and some years ago and then, you know, stories about how minarets and the mosques always had um, room for birdhouses and architects built tiny doors for cats next to the big doors for horses. So it got me to experience Istanbul and see, learn about Istanbul in, in ways that I had never known before.
0: Hi folks, as someone who just started hosting a podcast, I have gotten a lot of questions from my parents and people around my parents age of what's a podcast? How do you find a podcast? What's that all about? I'm sure that you, as a podcast fan, have also heard this from folks in your life, Uh, you know, from just anybody, people in your office, people in your family, people on the street, maybe see you listening to podcasts and say, what are you doing? Uh, That's why we have March, the month of Tripod, T-R-Y, Pod, Tripod. Think of somebody you know who would love a podcast but maybe hasn't heard of that podcast yet. And then think about, like, the way that you could introduce them to that, how you could get them interested, how you could get them to listen. Think about showing them how to listen to it. And that's a great way to spread the word about just podcasts in general. It doesn't have to be my podcast. It can be any podcast you like. I love a lot of podcasts. My favorite movie podcast, Blank Check with Griffin and David on the UCB Comedy Network. That's a great one if you love talking about movies. See? I just did that. You can listen to it on iTunes. You can listen to it on Android apps. Anyway, the point is you think of the podcast, you tell somebody about it, and then you tweet about it or you put it on Facebook or you do something on the social media with the hashtag tripod, hashtag T-R-Y pod, hashtag tripod. That's how you do it. just by virtue of where it is geographically, Istanbul, Turkey, comes up in the news throughout human history. Like, it is it is an important city throughout human history. What's the thing that, especially here in, in the States, maybe we misunderstand about it or that gets misrepresented through all of those stories?
1: Um, well, you know, I think um, it's probably similar with, with anywhere else. But the one thing, you know, we know very, li- we ex- outside of Turkey, um, even outside of Istanbul, I think people know very little about the city, about the everyday life of the people in the city. Um, And we are obviously always, um, we form our opinions of others based on the labels that we are presented about those people. So, um, you know, in many ways, making this film and featuring mostly Muslim individuals talking about you know in some cases they're referencing god and talking about cats and god and things like that and mm-hmm. um but in essence the the principles of the ideas are the same or are, are universal mm-hmm. you know so um i think istanbul is not as exotic as I think that's probably the biggest misconception, that it's superbly exotic. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, nowadays, nowhere is really superbly exotic anymore. (laughs) There are Starbucks. There are, you know, (laughs) there are all the chains that you can imagine. (laughs) Um, But um, there's just a, a lot to discover about it. And it's such a warm and lively city. think that's what people also don't really know Mm. Um, it's just bustling with life and just people have a great appreciation for food and family and companionship and drinking and partying and eating till you know wee hours of the morning Mm. Um, it's just it's a phenomenal physically phenomenal and emotionally um, very joyous sort of city
0: what's what's your favorite place there like if you were there right now where where would you want to be
1: My my life my life is motivated purely gastronomically. So everything for me is is a lot of things are, you know, in the film as well. You probably noticed there's a lot of, you know, we go uh, to the bakery that has the cat and like that Mm. baker the you know the uh, uh, puff pastries that he makes there. That's what we had every morning. And then Mm. um, I have a fish restaurant. There's a couple of fish restaurants in Istanbul. One of them is actually in the film. Um, with the hunter cat who yeah. um, fends off the rats. But there's another one called Asmala Javit, which is like an amazing restaurant with amazing fish. I think fish. Mm. Fish restaurants, specifically one or two of them, I would want to be transported there right now. It could also be because it's close to lunch hour. I'm starting to get a little
3: <laughs> hungry. But, a little, yeah, but a little there's much.
1: something along the shores of the Bosphorus, pretty much anywhere that you are, there's... a wind that comes from the water that brings with it the smells and scents of um, the hills and the the flowers and the trees that are so kind of exotic to North America and even some parts of Europe that just, you know, like the mulberry trees, the, the smell of the mulberries is just a different um, ex- experience. And there's, you know, with the seven hills and the dynamics of the Bosphorus Strait, the currents of the water, it, it's so energetic, the mm. city. And when you're sitting on the shores, that's you really feel it. Mm. And you can often understand why throughout the thousands of years that we've lived there, people have shown up and said, wow, I'm going to stay here. Mm. It's, it's that kind of like a very powerful presence. Yeah. So no matter who dresses her up in ugly clothes or pretty clothes, it doesn't matter. She will forever be a beautiful mm. being.
0: You've uh, lived in a lot of places over the years. What what have those various places brought to your uh, artistic work, or how you see the world as a filmmaker?
1: You know, it's um, it has it has confirmed my I, my belief that we are a lot more similar to one another, no matter where we live, than we are different. And that's kind of it's it, it's really kind of reassuring, actually, and it really makes you feel a lot better about life in general. And there's a lot of you know, I'm grateful for the internet, and I'm grateful actually for the you know the cat renaissance of the internet for allowing this film to get funded and be made and be ta- you know seen. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, just like the internet has cr- you know created these sort of communities where we feel we can find people that we relate to, that's how I always felt about living in different places. It was always getting to know a new lover in many ways. You know, like a city is like a new lover, and and you find different things that you know you can get from that relationship and but it's it's still you know you still find your pockets of um of comfort by the things that are sort of that fit into your um uh, the world that you create in your own mind you Mm -hmm. know if that makes sense so yeah
0: yeah excellent um you mentioned funding this movie. What was the process like for that? When when you went out, what was sort of your your pitch, I guess?
1: Well, we were very lucky that we had an investor who was very interested in the idea from the very beginning. But it's we still went through all the you know the steps that you can imagine. And in fact, our sort of research trip that we did in 2013, we created a sort of a, a teaser presentation, which ended up. Getting online and people started thinking it was already shot, you know, and this was like before we had even started making the film. Uh, But it was that piece of um, video was what we used also to convince people in Istanbul to get on board and talk to us about the cats, and also for presenting to our investor what we had in mind exactly. But the one thing that we could point to as producers, because Charlie and I co-produced this film, was to be able to say. Look at the statistics of, you know, um, online cat video popularities. Look Mm -hmm. at the statistics of how many people own cats in their homes. You know, this is an indication that people will be interested in anything that we do, you know, anything we do of quality with cats. But I didn't, you know, it wasn't, you know, even though we convinced our investor, and he was on board from the beginning. He had faith in the project. It wasn't easy uh, after we finished the film to get it to the audiences, you know, because it's not a very stri- – it's not a typical documentary. Mm-hmm. And it, t- it took a lot of time, but once – there were a few festivals that saw the value in it, and once it got in front of the audience, in front of people, it was yeah. – uh, it was a hit. And it makes me so happy, to, you know, when I hear back from people mm-hmm. and they – they say that they found some commonality between themselves and some one of the you know humans in the film it it's it's just so satisfying
0: yeah yeah um you've mentioned online cat videos a few times so i have to ask it as as a sidebar what's your favorite online cat video
1: oh uh, that's a hard one i'm not sh- i I'm, i have to say even though i appreciate them i <laughs> don't really subscribe to them too much sure. because Often they're they're a one-sided view of, Mm. you know, of cats. And I think in many ways, one of the motivations while making this film was to, you know, pay tribute to these animals in a way that is, I don't want to say more sophisticated, but just a little bit more elaborate than 30 seconds of one cat pushing another cat down the (laughs) stairs. You know, I mean, that stuff is hilarious and we'll always laugh at those things, but... um, it's 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 so it's just only one tiny tiny part of being a cat. Right. So, in in many ways, this film, I really, I mean, I think that they're genuinely one of the most interesting creatures around because they've kind of self domesticated with our with us, right. and we're very interesting because we've self domesticated. It's a really odd thing to do you know we think of it as being civilized and being safer but really we've also kind of limited our experience of life right um, and cats have been there with us from the very beginning and their kind of their companionship to that journey is very interesting to me and i think they deserve more respect and credit for having been by our side
0: mm. Well, I really like Maru in big box, which is great. (laughs) That's true.
1: Um, (laughs) That's
0: true. It is is interesting that you mention that because a cat will, like, invite itself into your home and, like, decide it lives there. And you're like, Mm -hmm. okay, I guess this is working now. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about some of the filmmakers you love. I'm wondering who, like, your influences were, who the people you looked at uh, as you were beginning your career uh, were.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting because this is my first documentary. It won't be my last because I'm now, I got the documentary bug, but I've been working on narrative things for (laughs) the last 15, 20 years. And, um, you know, so my influences have been changing. But with this film, for example, I have to say, you know, I have to pay great respect to Hero Dreams of Sushi as a wonderful example of a film, and David Gelb is a filmmaker who was able to achieve a kind of documentary that sort of went beyond just being a biopic or being a document of a place and a person. Um, and in many ways, it was we it was something that I always thought about and referenced in my mind when making Kitty as um as in terms of its structure and its approach. Uh, but you know i'm I'm a classical, you know, I love the the classics but um you know i have to say i'm also i'm a science fiction geek and Mm -hmm. i am a science fiction person and one day i will do my science fiction films too and um you know and uh then you'll see more of those influences
0: Mm -hmm. that's that's fascinating what's what's uh what's a science fiction movie you really love
1: of the recent ones i have to say arrival was incredibly um satisfying to watch yeah Um, But I am a big fan of sort of, you know, the children of men type of contemporary science fictions that don't necessarily rely too much on visual effects, but rather on the idea of the future, Uh, because that's what's really interesting to me about science fiction, that you can talk about philosophical uh, conundrums in in a context that you can't possibly address with reality of today, Mm. but you can easily address. I mean, the blade you know, Blade Runner has been and will always be, and Ridley Scott and Alien, and obviously will always be at the top, but... You know, there's also um, it's interesting because my my interests very uh, are 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 span across such a big um, spectrum because I was exposed to the Europeans, the European filmmakers, and that's where I first started making films and learning about film. And yet, I was as a child, I was heavily influenced by American uh, and Disney, and you know. Um, very, you know, sort of classical films out of the U.S. as well. So it's very, um, you know, it's very broad. The, the influences are very broad.
0: Interesting. Um, <laughs> you mentioned, and you mentioned sort of talking about stories like Blade Runner that are, about one thing but also about another thing I think that uh, a lot of the great documentaries do that as well mm-hmm. whereas like this movie starts out and you're like oh this is about cats and by the end it's about God and the existence of you know the meaning of life and all of these like big topics but it's still also about cats and I'm wondering how you manage that build how you sort of built the film so that you could go to those big places in just 80 minutes no less uh, without feeling like it was straining
1: you know it's uh, the, the cats themselves allow that um process to 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 happen um because of this relationship we have with them and that wasn't exactly that was exactly the the thought process of this of this project i mean this is um something charlie and i formed our own production company a couple of years ago and we had we had a slate of films uh, a slate, some narratives and this documentary that we were going to try to do all together and for logistic reasons, you know, documentary. The beauty of documentary is often you can just go and do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I highly recommend to every filmmaker who hasn't done a documentary to go and do a documentary. Uh, it's very liberating. But um, the whole idea was to, and and with what you just said about Blade Runner as well, and a lot of great documentaries and films. It's, um, it, you know, you always strive to have an element of the of the film that is attractive. Off from the beginning to people for people to come and see it in the first place, because mm. how are you going to talk about these bigger things and how are you going to introduce pe- foreign groups of people to the experience of Istanbul without "quote unquote" a bait, you know? Mm. And the bait is the cat, you know, mm. and the cat. But at the same time, the the cat is in itself the um, the topic of conversation from which you can elaborate onto these bigger themes and bigger ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if everyone, I don't think necessarily, I mean, I, the Turks are very philosophical sort of people, but I think it does help to have the sort of opportunity to interact with another species that doesn't speak <laughs> a language mm-hmm. or a spoken language. Mm-hmm. And it forces you to be aware of things. So, um, you know, I think it's that's why another reason why it's so important to be able to have that Um, interaction in our lives and I hope we're moving I'm seeing that we're moving towards that direction I think we have changed in our attitude about our place in the world and our relationship to other animals so greatly in the last 15-20 years Mm. Uh, so it's going in the right direction I hope we you know we come to that point where we're less um, categorical about how we live and you know dividing everything up into categories and saying you go live there and I go live here and you know
0: Mm. What have you learned about—what did you learn about making a documentary from working on narrative film? And what have you learned from making a documentary that you can then pour back into your
1: narrative Mm -hmm. work? Well, um, you know, in terms of visuals and in terms of uh, storytelling, obviously, you know, I couldn't have done this film without having had an understanding of narrative structure and um, the traditional way of of doing um, or or telling a story— but, um, yeah, so that's why I think the film feels like a film because of the way it looks and the way that it sort of um, moves in its, in its um, pace, which is, you know, pacing is so mm-hmm. critical in narrative stuff. You That's really all you have, you know, no, a I'll lot be- of times. Um, the difference between the narrative and the documentary experience, of course, is how much control you have.
2: Right.
1: <laughs> when you're trying to do narrative stuff, you really are controlling everything a lot of the times and most directors try to Mm -hmm. Um, but a lot of the cool things that happen tend to happen by accident like in life Mm. (laughs) and um, it's it's i think successful films and successful filmmakers tend to also be those who embrace those sort of happy accidents and go with them and or allow their actors to take a, a, a you know a, a, a sidestep or allow their cinematographers to do what they do, you know? <laughs> um and so with doing a documentary and working with cats, you really, you know, it was a matter of having to let go a lot of things and mm-hmm. saying, okay, we will have faith that it's gonna go, you know, in the direction that we need it to go and um it will find its it will find its structure. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Um what what were what sort of made you want to be a filmmaker? Like what was do you remember a movie that made you want to make movies or was it like what was the process like because um uh, you know it, it's it's uh not always a natural turn for some people.
1: I remember being happiest when watching films. Mm-hmm. And I remember feeling giddy at the start opening credits of a film. Mm-hmm. Usually it was Sunday this is from my childhood. So mm-hmm. Sunday mornings really was the only time I could watch anything and there was anything really on. <laughs> and um, and it was the, you know, the opening credits of like a big studio often, right. an American studio, that I would start getting, you know, butterflies in my stomach and really feeling excited to go on this journey. I think um, the possi- the endless possibilities of film is what's so wonderfully attractive to me. And the fact that you can examine the human condition... And, you know, either have fun with it or bring joy because of it or make someone think about something or you yourself think about something. And the fact that it's so and then when I got into it, I realized because, you know, not all art forms are as collaborative as as filmmaking. And that's, I think, the most satisfying part of making films, that it is a collaborative process. And you get to work with other artists who are amazing at what they do. And you get to work towards a common vision that could only be that good if you work together as opposed to if you're just imposing your vision on something. Otherwise, I'd be doing video art,
0: you mm-hmm. know? What what uh, sort of made you want to make a documentary in the first place, like if you had been working in narrative primarily?
1: You know, I wanted to experiment with, well, I'll be honest with you, it was the subject matter. Mm-hmm. We had the idea I was going to actually produce it originally because we thought we'd be producing a few other projects at the same time, and I didn't think I'd be able to produce, direct, and produce other things at the same time. But the more we started building the the idea of the film and the more I got involved with, you know, how it needed to be, the more it was obvious to me that I had to do it and I had to execute it a certain way. Mm. Um, And the freedom of being able to go and do it, as I mentioned earlier— you know it's very it can be you know, it's very trying. It's very testing of your of your ego and of yourself as an artist when you're spending fifteen, twenty years in an industry and you're having trouble breaking out what's with, with a project, you're trouble you're having trouble you know getting actors signed on or agents interested or funding found because obviously it takes a lot more money to do even a low budget indie narrative mm-hmm. film. so, it was like okay, well, we don't have a choice. We're just gonna do it, right? Um, and it was the best decision we could have made, I think, to just go ahead and make this film. Yeah,
0: as it's as it's rolled out, this movie has been uh, a hit. Um, not like Star Wars level, but yeah. it's, it's certainly made it's made uh, quite a bit of money for a documentary. It's done very well. People, I've seen it in in screenings, and people really respond to it. As you were. Screening it for the first time for audiences, like what was the moment where you were like, "Oh, okay, people like this. People enjoy this movie."
1: Uh, it, it, from the beginning, from the moment that we see uh, the yellow tabby Sare and how she's um, navigating the, you know, the the patrons of a cafe trying mm-hmm. to get food from them, and immediately the audience starts responding with oohs and ahs and mm-hmm. laughter,s and um and. And then it's very interesting to be in an audience, in the cinema with an audience when watching this film because they often grow quiet at times and thoughtful and then they laugh again and quiet and thoughtful. And so it was um, really actually, it was Seattle film International Film Festival where I got to experience it with multiple audiences that I just, um, I felt, okay, people mm-hmm. get it. People are reacting into it in the way that I was hoping they would. And so it was, it's it's been so satisfying. And one of the things that's in, is extra satisfying is I've had a lot of children at screenings, and a lot of them have come up to me and talked to me afterwards and said, "This is the best movie I've seen," mm. you know, which is a huge statement statement from an eight year old. And I often ask them, "Did you, you know, did you, was it bother? Did it bother you that it was in another language that you had to read subtitles mm-hmm. and things?" And they said, "No, I actually liked hearing a different language." Mm. And these are kids from all backgrounds, all kinds of cities. You know, they're not just, you know, one type of kid. And I was really, you know, it made me realize how much we also underestimate, you know, eight, nine, ten-year-olds in their capacity to understand and relate to things. And
0: There's a lot of big ideas in this movie, a lot of people you talk to who share sort of their philosophies of, of life. Was there anybody you remember interviewing that made you say, hmm, um, you know, like maybe changed your mind about something or made you think about the world differently?
1: Um. You know, there were a lot of people that are not in the film. Um, A lot of people we interviewed who were, who, uh, you know, because I made a conscious decision while we were making it or towards the end of it that people who weren't interacting with a cat while Mm -hmm. I was interviewing them were just not going to work in the visual Mm -hmm. sort of sensibility of the film. Some of them you hear them, but not all of them. Um, But um, I was, I mean, I was, I have to say, I was guided... In how the film ended up being because of a lot of what a lot of because of what other people said mm-hmm. a lot of the time. Um, there were people who expressed everything that I wished was expressed in the film. And of course, you know, as the director, of course, I'm you know I'm these people are speaking on my behalf as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have to say that they influenced the way that I put it together. Um, so it was almost like I was a conduit of the story. And uh, of these cats and of these people more than being the sort of, you know, the maker of mm-hmm. of the story itself.
0: Mm-hmm. You've mentioned um, uh, you kind of have the documentary uh, bug now. Uh, are there particular subjects you're interested in, in looking at uh, that, that you can share or are you keeping that under wraps for now?
1: No, there's two projects that I'm um, actively working on. One of them, <laughs> one of them is a music documentary about the hippie trail that went through Istanbul mm. in the early '70s. Mm-hmm. The Americans and the Europeans who traveled by road through Istanbul and northern Turkey into Tehran and mm-hmm. up to Nepal, which is like a journey nobody can possibly make right now. Right. Which even at the time was pretty, you know, courageous to do. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but there was one place in Istanbul where everybody met. Mm-hmm. And musicians would get together and jam out together and there would be influences from the east to the west and the mm-hmm. west to the east. And I'm just really curious about that time in the world as well, how people were thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, then I have another one about um, Sufism and about the private relationship between us and God mm-hmm. and in how every religion and every you know belief system, there is that sort of the more private, more personal um, connection and what that really means about about us and about our lives. Mm. Mm. Um, I think there is a need for an understanding of of that connection more now than Mm. there was before.
0: Uh, We're kind of heading into the end here, but uh, I wanted to ask you, now now you're based in Los Angeles, uh, what is it you love about Los Angeles, if anything?
1: (laughs) I love Los Angeles. Mm. Los Angeles in many ways reminds me of how Istanbul was when Mm. I was a kid. Um, It's a very... um, comfortable city Mm -hmm. in the sense that it allows it gives you a space it gives you access to nature I mean the fact that you can go down to the beach watch giant pelicans these prehistoric birds Mm -hmm. and then you see these you know dolphins and you see you know all kinds of life Mm -hmm. it's very exciting to me and um, I have a toddler now and so the idea of her being able to be free, physically free, to do anything she wants to do is very um, attracted to me. And California, in general, I am in awe of the state, and I am in awe of the people who live here and who choose to live here. I think um, people are so advanced in their way of thinking about the world and about their lives and about their place in it. Most of the time, except <laughs> when we're driving, And then everybody turns into you know a demon. Yeah. But otherwise, um, I'm really you know I'm really impressed. I, I wish. It could be more contagious, this mindset.
0: Right, right. Um I, I I do have to ask the inevitable question, which is do you have a cat?
1: I do not have a cat. Mm-hmm. Um I do not um have the lifestyle to be the only provider of a cat, if that is like if I were to get a cat that relied on me completely, which is something that I have a lot of trouble with, you mm-hmm. know, because my Relationship with cats and my existence with cats has always, you know, proven to me that they must have their freedom.
2: Right.
1: And I don't, I couldn't, I can't have a cat that has to be in my home all the time. Mm. Um, my, my, also, my traveling and my irresponsible lifestyle in that sense would be too much of a burden but i'm working on having a a couple of community cats i have (laughs) a little bit of a compound living situation with neighbors and so i'm hoping that we can make that work and um, foster a lot of cats Mm. because i really miss having them in my life and you know like i told you before i do chase after them and (laughs) they often don't want to say hi but i would love to be able to um, provide for them and, and take them out of shelters as much as possible
0: so I ask a few questions of everybody at the end, uh, just kind of the same ones, just to see what people say. Uh, and I'm going to start with, "What's the very last like cultural thing you consumed? Book you read? Uh, TV show you watched? Movie you watched? Like song you listened to? And what did you think of it?"
1: Well, I just I I just watched "I Am Not Your Negro," mm-hmm. and wow, what a significant, brilliant, beautiful film mm-hmm. um, and subject matter. And um, I'm so grateful it was made. Mm. So um, I'm kind of still consumed by that. And so every day I'm like thinking a little bit more and more about what I just witnessed, what I saw. Because it's also, you know, it's interesting because it all, it's all about, it all comes back to looking at ourselves and Mm -hmm. questioning uh, what we need that we um, are harmful or hurtful to others, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's very interesting to me this, you know, it's almost like therapy that we need to do yeah <laughs> as large groups of people you mm-hmm. know some kind of um talk therapy that we have to have which i should also my mom's a th- psychotherap- uh, a psychoanalyst so you know i can't help but think about that stuff but <laughs> um um i also you know e- like to me every sort of little unexpected um out of place thing whether it's uh You know, somebody—I saw a tangerine uh, on the side of the street. Somebody put a headphone—stuck a headphones in it, you know, Mm -hmm. and put it there. And it was like a tangerine with a headphone stuck into it, you know. And I said, how brilliant that somebody did this. Mm -hmm. You know, and I just—I enjoy those sorts of things Mm -hmm. so much more than sort of organized cultural stuff.
0: What's the first uh, piece of culture you really remember loving, like, as a child?
1: Among the many things, I think one of the—as young, a a young, young child, uh, culturally speaking— it was Attenborough's um, documentaries and Jacques Cousteau's documentaries that mm. sort of really, really, really stayed with me mm. and um, allowed me to go on these journeys that I couldn't physically go on as a child. Mm. Mm. Um, but I do remember, I mean, I've, I'm have i lucky enough that my I had an artist for a father and my mother is also very culturally um, interested in things, so I, she always exposed us to things that were different and maybe controversial, but... Um, yeah, it's hard for me to say, but I did get into reading science fiction <laughs> with, um, you know, the Ender's Game series. Oh, and, sure. And I am a big fan of those books and um, those ideas. And um, But, you know, the, the yeah, I mean, it's funny. I don't think of them as cultural as much as—it's yeah. interesting what we define yeah, as cultural. Exactly. You know, yeah. it's like so when something is a little bit entertaining. It's almost like it's not cultural anymore. <laughs> but,
0: um <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Jada, for being here today. Uh, You can go and see Katie in theaters. Uh, It's playing throughout the country. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much.
0: I Think You're Interesting is hosted and executive produced by Todd Vanderwerf. In case you hadn't guessed, that's me. The heads of Vox podcasting are Marty Moe and Jack Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishan Kerwa. Our sound designer is Miles Yule. Logo design was by Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Production Manager is Alex Allreich. Our Production Coordinator is Paige Bethman. Audio Engineering and Post-Production are provided by P3 Post. This week's episode is recorded in the wonderful Village Workspaces podcast studio in Santa Monica, California, and our Recording Engineer this week was Che Brooks. We'll be back next week with another exciting figure from the world of arts and entertainment, somebody who I think is pretty interesting. But until then, please remind me to write these things down in advance.